We will have our second installment of Breaking Down a Christmas Song. And believe it or not, I have some thoughts on Hallmark movies. We'll do that and more on the Corey Act Show. Angels we have heard on high, sweetly singing o'er the plains. And the mountains in reply, echoing their joyous strains. Welcome in to this edition of the Corey Act Show. Glad to have you with us on Christian Talk 660, 92.9 FM, or on all the minious, various, and sundry podcasting apps where we reside. Glad to have you with us. Remember, out there on Anchor, if you're listening on Anchor.fm or on the Anchor app, you can actually call in to the show right now. It doesn't have to be live and just leave a voicemail for the show. I uh, would love to get your thoughts on any given topic. Uh, you can also become a, sh- a supporter of the show right there on Anchor as well. My name is Corey Truax. We are dedicated to smarter, deeper, better talk about everything here on the show. And today, that everything is, is quite the variety. You might even call this the Corey Truax Variety Hour if we're going to do some kind of throwback to the old, uh, the old days on TV. Let me give you a quick preview, and then we will dive in. I do have some thoughts on Hallmark movies that I think will surprise all of you. Uh, there is a very fun poll that Faithwire published that figured out which denomination of Protestant Christianity drinks the most, as in alcohol, and there's some fun... Uh, you can probably guess which one it is, by the way, but there's some fun takeaways from that poll. Uh, there's a semi-viral story of a young, le- young girl whose name was mocked at an airport, and her mom got mad about it. I have some thoughts about that one. And if we can get to it, there is uh, there's a really good example of how not to behave in the public discourse politically from a member of, a, of the legislature in Illinois, and then there's a great example of how to behave when it comes to human dignity and honoring one another and generally behaving ourselves and acquitting ourselves like adults in the public sphere. So I want to do that and maybe a little more. But here is where we begin. It is Advent season. It is my favorite time of the year besides football season. And I do love Christmas music. And by that, I primarily mean Christmas hymns. Uh, certainly, there's some non-directly Christian things that I like. Uh, for The old Frank Sinatra stuff is good. Some of that big band Christmas music. I will love me some chestnuts roasting on an open fire. I think that's called the Christmas song. But I do love the theology of Christmas hymns. And last week we talked about the importance of the line, the thrill of hope in, in O Holy Night. So this week, a friend of mine, Chandler, he challenged me, he did, that the best Christmas song might be Hark the Herald Angels Sing, uh, which has been a long time number two for me, because uh, again, the theology is very deep. Uh, but it, it made me think, hey, let's break down that one. And I think we're going to do this for all five Saturdays. We'll start every show breaking down and thinking through some Christmas song that you might be singing in church. Like this is a, a conviction of mine. Especially for those that grew up in church or have been doing it for a long time. We tend to sing something and just don't think about it one bit. We just sing right over the words. Those happen to be the lyrics. They're pre-programmed in. We're thinking about what happens after we get out of church. We're thinking about the, the football game that's going to come on at 1 or at 4.30 or 8 o'clock tonight. The Monday night game. All the things that we have going at work or the thing that we're mad about and trying to solve. The thing we're not often focusing on is the thing that's true that we're singing, that's supposed to be part of worship, that this God of the universe has given us this vehicle called songs to give him worship and even internalize true things about him. So that's something I want to help you do. Hark the Herald Angels Sing. I want to highlight for you 
at least three lyrics that you might be singing in church this year in the song that are very important. So number one, in verse one, I think it is, there is, uh, so it's Hark the Herald Angels Sing, uh, Glory to the Newborn King, Peace on Earth and Mercy Mild, God and Sin, there it is, I'm trying to go through my memory here, uh, Mercy Mild, God and Sinners Reconciled. Now that's not a word that often gets used in church world. We are generally uncomfortable with the idea of sin. We definitely like to think that uh, that sin's not an issue. Uh, maybe the church in the past has overemphasized the importance, but that's not true. This is a fundamental part of the biblical narrative that there is this thing, sin, that separates us from God, and that's part of the gloriousness of this time of year that God put on flesh with the express purpose of this, to reconcile God and sinners. And that's a God that does not need to reconcile with us. We are not a necessity for his happiness. He doesn't have a you whole shape. What, what do you, what's the old uh, bad Christian phrase on that? Oh yeah, you have a God-shaped hole in your heart, which is not true. Uh, it's a really bad way to, to talk about the need for reconciliation. But God certainly doesn't have a you-shaped hole in his heart. He doesn't have a me-shaped hole in his heart. He doesn't need us. Nevertheless comes to earth to reconcile sinners to himself. That There's nothing particularly attractive about any of us to it would want to reconcile. It's just out of his goodness. And then just think of that word reconciled. So this God who doesn't need us, these sinners that don't deserve it, to be reconciled. Have you ever had to be on either end of a reconciliation? To say that sorry? To forgive that person? To have that blockage between the two of you? emotionally and relationally, and to reconcile the two, it's a hard thing, but man, is it can, can it be fulfilling to reconcile? And so as you sing through, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, it's in the first verse there, that mercy mild God and sinners reconciled. It's a beautiful thing to celebrate. I believe it's in verse 2. You'll get a series of lyrics that go like this. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased with us in flesh to dwell, Jesus, our Emmanuel. Yeah, when you sing through that, don't just gloss over it. That's, those are some glorious truths. So start it, we'll go quick here, line by line. Veiled in flesh, right? So here's God, the Godheads that we're going to be able to see, but we, we learn from the Bible, uh, going all the way back to, that is Abraham. It's, it's Abraham or Moses, I'm thinking it's Abraham. Uh, where Abraham says, I, I want to see your glory, I want to see you. And God is honest, yes, you, you can't do that, that'll kill you. Uh, so you can just see me as I'm going away. You can see the back part of me. And even that made Abraham, or maybe it was Moses' face, glow. Uh, this is actually, the, people don't get this from Isaiah. A very famous passage in Isaiah 6, I believe it is, where Isaiah has this vision and he is in the throne room of God. He is where God is and he has this this panic where he talks about his unclean lips and how he needs to be cleansed. The Jewish readers understood that to be Isaiah knowing, I can't be in the presence of God. I'm unholy. It will kill me. His presence will literally destroy me because it is so holy. It is so powerful. I'm going to be killed if I stay here and I want out. That was Isaiah's attitude in Isaiah 6. And so this idea of being able to see the Godhead, well, how did how were we able to do that? Well, it was veiled in flesh, a body put on it so that we could interact with the very God, the creator God of the universe. So veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, then hail, 
worship, honor the what? The incarnate deity, the God who's not far away, the God who is not disembodied, but the God who is incarnate in flesh, who put flesh on. Then next line is pleased with us in flesh to dwell. So here we are, Jesus in glory, being worshipped by angels, and he was pleased to put on one of these bodies. Guys, just think about your body for a minute. Even if you work on it pretty hard and you decently of high nutrition, all it takes is some age and we start to ache a little bit. Our body starts to betray us. He was pleased to leave that place of glory to dwell with us. Pleased with us in flesh to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel. Jesus, this God with us. That's a huge deal, too. I mean, if you go back to the Jewish way of understanding and you just read your Bible carefully, that one of the big points of Eden is that we were in community with God, that we didn't have, there was no problem. We could actually be in his, his presence. We, that was the, the best part of Eden wasn't the lack of disease or all the, the, the various wondrous, wondrous abilities that the, a perfect human body and human mind would have without the fall or the effects of sin. It was that you could be in the presence of God, be in the presence of the one who made you. That was what made Eden awesome. And when we were kicked out of Eden for, for the sin issue, there's a big theme throughout the Old Testament of then recreating those places. So we create, not we, but God says, make me a tabernacle, make me a temple. Because since you guys can't meet with me because I am holy and you are not, well, we're going to make a space. We're going to make a space called the Holy of Holies or the Most Holy Place, however you grew up. And you can meet with me there. That's where you can meet with me. And then this is a, a process that's, that's really, really hard. It's hard to get into the Holy Place or the Holy of Holies and actually meet with God. And there's even imagery of Eden all over those things, like uh, the curtain before you go into the Holy of Holies, was had sewn into it cherubim. So that's the same kind of angel that God used to put in front of Eden. Like this idea of God's presence is being guarded, and it's being guarded for our own good in some way, because it could destroy us. So it was hard to be in God's presence, but then we get to the song, and it's veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail incarnate deity, uh, pleased with us in flesh to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel, God actually with us, Again, and the final one to think through and focus on as you sing the song in church is very much related. The first part, I think it's in verse 3, mild. You might even say humble, meek. Mild, he lays his glory by. Mild, he lays his glory by. So he has this glory of heaven and eternal worship. That's how he's always existed for all of time. Mild. He lays his glory down. He, or I think one of the versions says lays his glory down. That's an that's a f- incredible truth that the God of the universe, in in that incredible reality, would just choose to give it up while we were yet sinning. Choose to give that up to put on a body and come here. And here's the how that line ends. Mild he lays his glory by, born that man. No more may die. So born coming to earth to live a life that would satisfy God, live a life we could not live, to then die the death that we deserve to die so that God's wrath is satisfied. God's wrath doesn't just go away. It actually does get to terminate. It gets to be poured out on Jesus so it's not poured out on us. 
This is the reason he is born. It's a glorious truth. And so as you sing, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, I hope you will focus on that. Focus on these Christmas songs, Christmas hymns as you sing them in your car or you're with your kids or when you're in church. There's a lot of really good fundamental truth. This Advent season needs not be just December 25th and all kinds of presents and gifts. This needs to be a time that reinvigorates our excitement, our glory in, our celebration that we are redeemed by this very unique Jesus that God sent his son to earth for us. We need to be inculcating that in ourselves and in our kids. We'll get off of Christmas music when we come back. I do want to talk about uh, some example of one way not to behave in public discourse and then one very good example of how to behave. I want to get to that story of uh, the young lady who had her name mocked, this weird or at least fun poll about which Christians drink the most. Uh, there's Hallmark movie talk. There's lots more we want to do. So stick with us for the remainder of the Corey Act Show. Oh, holy night, the stars are brightly shining. Welcome back to the Corey Act Show. Connect the show on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or Snapchat. Look for me, Corey Act. You will find me there. Send any, as some of you are doing more and more often, I'm appreciative because then I don't have to do any real work continue to send stories and interesting things that you think should be talked about on the show always interested to uh, interact with those and see what can be used uh, always appreciative of it and uh, for for those of you who are doing this uh, when you share the show on social media i'm thinking of uh, zach thank you for doing that charlie would you do that it's it means a ton uh, when you share the show and help it grow I just, I really can't express it. And I'm actually quite good with words, but I can't express how much uh, I appreciate that kind of effort you put into trying to help to sh- grow the show. Okay, next up. There is a good example of how not to behave in the public discourse. It comes from a member of the State House of Representatives in Illinois. Happens to be a Democrat. Plenty of Republicans behave the same way, but I want to play for you now from, her name is Representative Kifowit. Representative Kifowit from Illinois. There's apparently a vote having to do with something to do with environmental protection going on in the House there. Uh, and this is what this delightful lady, uh, if you can't sense it, that's called sarcasm. This is what she had to say on the floor of the Illinois House. Uh, representative from Lombard, I would like to make him a broth of Legionella and pump it into the water system of his loved one so that they can be infected, they can be mistreated, they can sit and suffer by getting aspirin instead of being properly treated and ultimately die. Well, that's just great. I know that when I started the year, what I was hoping was we would finally get to the spot where representatives in government were literally wishing death on other representatives and their families while conducting their government duties. Like, we've finally arrived, guys. We have Representative Kifowit actually on the floor saying, I sure would like to, not just for them to die, I would like to actively take part in poisoning their water so they can suffer and die slowly. That was helpful. Hey, thanks, Representative Kifowit. All right, so quickly. Obviously, that's not how we behave. It's not even funny. There's even ways to do some harsh things that are maybe effective in satire, but she's just being mean. She even has her hand on her hip. She's being quite school marmy on the on the floor of the, the Illinois House there. And it's it's good that she she actually eventually apologized and she was reprimanded for it. That's a good thing. But this is a great example of, hey, don't behave this way. Where you're tempted to say something terrible to someone you disagree with, hey, just don't. 
instead have some have some restraint. Uh, this is something I've learned I've learned more and more over the years. Have some restraint. Behave yourself. Ask yourself if your kids are going to hear you say it. If your spouse is going to hear you say it. If your parents are going to hear you say it. Would you still say it? So is it something you'd be proud of? So that's one. Don't behave that way. Then there was a I think I would call it viral uh, after the passing of Bush 41 is what I call him. That's George Bush Sr. There was a handwritten note George H.W. left for Bill Clinton on the day of Bill Clinton's inauguration. And it's just really great. I mean, I, I, I would love to get back to this sort of civility. I, I pray that maybe one day we could get back to this sort of civility with one another. I mean, Bill Clinton was a terrible person and a terrible president. You know, George H.W. wasn't a great president. But I'm going to read it to you. You probably saw it, but I, I want to read to you this note. And first imagine it. So it's January, I guess it's probably 20th. Yeah, Inauguration Day is 20th every year. January 20th, 1993. Uh, George H.W. had just, I mean, he had like a 91% approval rating two years previous. It's Desert Storm, you know, we're winning a war. And then he had the read my lips and no new taxes. And then he raised taxes. And Bill Clinton didn't trounce him by any stretch. Bill Clinton didn't even win 45% of the vote. He won the Electoral College by a big margin, but uh, he just lost the presidency. And Bill Clinton's going to walk into work the first day, and what George H.W. Bush left on the desk for him was this note. It's handwritten, which is quaint and cute and adorable. It's also a little hard to read, So, but let me do my best. Uh, he says, Dear Bill, when I walked into this office just now, I felt the same sense of wonder and respect that I felt four years ago. I know you will feel that too. I wish you great happiness here. I never felt the loneliness some presidents have described. There will be very tough times, made even more difficult by criticism you may not think is fair. I'm not a very good one to give out advice, but just don't let the critics discourage you or push you off course. You will be our president when you read this note. I wish you well. I wish your family well. Your success now is our country's success. I am rooting hard for, hard for you. Good luck, George. I know some of you hate that chumminess because you, you like the idea of war. They're the bad guys. We are the good guys. Destroy them, destroy them, and wreck them in every way. I would wonder, I'm just asking you, since we've gone down that route, where the people who disagree with you are the enemy. They are to be destroyed. Have things been better or worse? I would say that that attitude began in the early 90s. It was Newt Gingrich, who has a, a lot, I could say a lot of positive things about Newt Gingrich, but he was, the, he was really the first one to come along as a firebrand and start using that language. That side over there, they are an enemy. They're an enemy of the state. They're an enemy of the country. They hate, they actually literally hate America. And we have to defeat them outright. We, we, there's no room for compromise with them. They're not people. They are an enemy that we have to destroy. And let's be clear that the left immediately reciprocated. And there were those on the left with those tendencies previous. I think Newt got it started in, got, got it started in earnest. And it's been war ever since. It's been absolute war ever since. And would you say that the government was better run and it's been more effective 
since not from 1990 to now, or was it better? Was it better from 1970 to 2000, or 1970 to 1990? I would say it actually was better from 1970 to 1990. And it was a time where we didn't destroy each other and hate each other. And so, two examples. Don't be like the crazy woman who thinks the people need to die because they disagree with her. Also, be more like H.W. Bush, who's gracious and thoughtful. That's a, a good rule of thumb. All right, next one. If you didn't hear, there was a story that went semi-viral from, I think it was Southwest Airlines. A mom says she was flying somewhere and it became apparent that the people working the counter at their gate saw the name of her child on like a flight manifest. The name of the name of the child is spelt this way. I'm about to give you the spelling. You can try to decipher how you want to pronounce it. The spelling is A B C D E. Okay? Uh, a B C D E. The first the first five letters of the alphabet. It's either pronounced Absidy or Absidy. I would hope it's Absidy and not Absidy because Absidy sounds like another workout from Beachbody like uh, Tony Horton or Sean T is supposed to take us through Absidy. So let's let's go with Absidy. That's her name. And the mom says that she could hear you know, some of the mockery and making fun and she wants them to stop making fun because her daughter might be able to hear and it's going to hurt her daughter's feelings. Well, first, yeah, of course, don't make fun of people's names. Don't do that. That's, that's terrible behavior. Uh, it's not even okay to do when they can't hear you, but it's certainly not okay to do when it could hurt their feelings directly. So part one for the Southwest people, if they were actually doing that, don't do that. That's bad behavior. It's uh, totally irresponsible, and I can't, uh, I can't excuse it under any circumstances. That's one. Two. This lady, however, mom, this is your fault, at least at some level. Those people need to behave, but you have been the catalyst for this. You chose to make the name of your child about you. You wanted to make a statement about you, and so instead of giving a child a name that would equip them for life, not be a hindrance to them, you made a decision about you and what you want people to think about you, and you named your child something that would get you attention because you live for you. This is a problem with parenting for millennials and those around our age. Kids become accessories. They're not humans. They're not people that we raise. It's a thing that we want, like a pet almost, because it says something about us. Having a kid says something about us, and how they dress, they, that says something about us, and how they... Uh, how they perform in their sports or their dance thing or their uh, in gymnastics, that's just something about us. Our kid is a reflection of us in a way that we really internalize. And so if I want you to know that I'm super special and I'm different and I'm unique, well, you know what you do? You name your kid Absidy and you spell it in a ridiculous way. Like if you, if you just like the sound of it, that's actually kind of pretty. Absidy, what a cool name. You know how you spell that? A-B-C-I-T-Y. A-B-C-I-T-Y. You know what? No one laughs at that. No one goes... That's absurd. They go, huh, that's, that's a really pretty name. I've never heard it before. When you spell it A-B-C-D-E, because that's not how phonics works, and I was once hooked on phonics, it worked for me. That's not how that, that, that goes. And so this is a problem in parenting more generally when you make a kid your accessory and not a human being with their own value. So sure, don't mock the name. It's, it's rude. It's mean. But also, mom, you did that. Stop blaming that on anybody but yourself. That's on you. Next. I spent a segment on my own show, maybe it was on Dr. Beam's show years ago. It was Dr. Beam's show, I recall. 
making fun of Hallmark movies, and specifically Hallmark Christian mo- Christmas movies. And I even saw my favorite comedy site, Babylon B, had an article that made fun of Hallmark Christmas movies recently. I actually want to read it to you because it's funny, and it also reflects an attitude I've had about them. But I'm, I'm about to make a change. I'm about to surprise some people uh, with a, a different opinion on this than you would expect and one different than I previously had. Okay, so the headline, this is parody, by the way. It's supposed to be funny. Nothing I'm about to read is real. It's all just one big joke. The headline is Hallmark Christmas Movie Hailed as Trite and Predictable. That sounds just like me. That's what I would have said. They're trite and predictable movies. Here's the fake story. A new Hallmark movie, The Christmas Village, is getting rave reviews for how extremely formulaic it is, making absolutely no innovations in the genre. Quote, you know exactly what's going to happen from very from the very beginning, rave TV critic Daisy Walton. Quote, the male and female leads don't get along at first, but you know exactly where that is going. Their first kiss gets interrupted. Absolutely standard. But you know how it will end. They'll kiss in front of a Christmas tree. The movie did absolutely everything I, everything expected of it and absolutely nothing more. Other critics hailed how the actors made absolutely no interesting acting choices to distract from the simple, generic plot of a woman having, having to choose between her career in the big city and love in a small town. Quote, the leads were two blandly attractive people who could have easily been interchanged with dozens of other actors, gushed online critic Karen Ward. Quote, in fact, they could have swapped out the actors halfway through the movie and I probably wouldn't even have noticed. Quote, the movie is like a warm hug, said housewife and Hallmark movie connoisseur Laura Parks. Quote, and the important thing about hugs is they go exactly as you expect with no surprises. Not everyone loved the new movie, though. Quote, this is dumb. End quote, said every husband forced to watch even a couple minutes of it. Okay, that's funny, and I get it. These movies are formulaic, it's true. They don't surprise you. There aren't twists. There are um, about, I think when I made fun of them previously, I identified five storylines. There are five storylines to every Hallmark Christmas movie, uh, and I think that I don't think that's changed. But I'm starting to change my mind in this way. I'm, I'm not changing my mind on the quality. It usually is C-rate actors or actresses. They're not particularly good. The stories are predictable. They fit into a formula. But I'm starting to see their role. There, There is a relevance to them. And that relevance is for, I think, the people like me, or at least something we need. I'm cynical. I have some negativity. I, I, I live mostly optimistically, but there's some pessimism. I'm a little cold. I think those movies are... There's some healthiness to them. That there's not everything has to be terrible. That we can just enjoy good, wholesome, no downside. It's just, hey, sometimes things work out. Sometimes that actually is the case. It's rare, but you never know. One of these days, it could possibly happen. There's there's something about these Hallmark movies that I think we can actually appreciate and we find value in just, just in that one way. That is, you know, not everything is terrible all the time. Uh, and so that's it. I have, a new, I have a new opinion on Hallmark movies in that they have uh, this, there's hope to them, and it's idealistic. Uh, but in a world that's super cynical, you know, th- this is about to get 
Oh, this is too much uh, for me. But here we go. Hey, guys, you remember Jerry Maguire? You remember that movie? Before Jerry Maguire says that iconic line, the you complete me, one of his opening, more opening lines in that speech, is, and it's really a romantic speech, he says, we live in a cynical world. And I don't know that that's going to do well with the ladies at any time, if that's how you open uh, your declaration of love as you begin with, we live in a cynical world. That's kind of, I think that's his opening line. But that's what the Hallmark movie is a response to. Well, we do. We live in a cynical world. And there is some role for art, movies, music, something, that embraces an unrealistic expectation because we do want to hope for the best. So there you go. Uh, with no shame, I'm going to watch watch a Hallmark Christmas movie or two this uh, this season because they're relevant and they're, there's something encouraging about them. Okay, next up. There is from... That's Faithwire. Faithwire.com published a new survey that shows alcohol, or excuse me, the attitudes regarding alcohol amongst Christian denominations. So here you go. Uh, among the Protestant denominations in, in the U.S., Lutherans consume the most alcohol. Surprise, surprise. Just kidding, my, my Lutheran brethren. Uh, I would have guessed Lutherans and then probably Presbyterians a second. Uh, the poll, which was published Tuesday, revealed nearly 75% of Lutherans answered affirmatively. Uh, it was 23%. They, the, I'm trying to find the smallest one on this graph. There it is. 23% Pentecostals. Pentecostals are the least likely to drink. Um, you know, the other word in Pentecostal is Pentecostal holiness movement. Uh, and so, especially the intellectual roots, some of the roots of Pentecostalism would have come out of the temperance movement, which is not necessarily a biblical movement. It was a cultural social movement. Uh, so the Pentecostals drink the least. Uh, 62% of Methodists said they drink. 33% of Baptists, one-third of Baptists, uh, and a big chunk of, or some other big chunk of Baptists who were just lying. But one-third of Baptists said they do. 43% of non-denominational believers said they drink as well. Um, some other opinions. Uh, here we go. Nine, in ten, nine out of ten American churchgoers say you should never, ever be drunk. Right? So that's good. They nailed that. Uh, so 90% of believers, so even though there's a bunch of Christians who are drinking with some kind of regularity, vast majority, nine out of ten, know that drunkenness is a no question whatsoever, sinful problem. Uh, when it comes to the idea of total abstinence or teetotalism, absolutely no alcohol at any time ever, 23%, so about one-fourth of Protestant American churchgoers say that they think the Bible says to totally abstain. So that's just some interesting notes. I do want to, I do want to mention something on, I guess, philosophically, uh, alcohol for me and my perspective. I grew up with teetotalism. I grew up with alcohol itself, like in its actual cellular makeup. It is a sinful item. It's like its existence is from the the pits of hell. Now, I will admit I have seen alcohol do more damage than good for people. I've definitely seen it used just fine. I've, I've seen it on the, on the balance do more damage than good. However, are we going to be people of the Bible or not? Because I have literally zero interest. I hope you have literally zero interest in what some people came up with as their tradition. I hope we all have zero interest in what the 
opinions of a man were at some point if those opinions are not found firmly in Scripture. And so I don't care what your grandpappy said. I don't care what my great-grandpappy said because it doesn't matter what they say if it's not founded firmly in Scripture. So tradition should play no role in this whatsoever, but scripturally. Yeah, there's no room for drunkenness whatsoever. This is declared several places in the New Testament. It's not just even uh, said ethically, like you can, so you can just show, well, here's 15 times in the Bible that drunkenness ended in a really bad situation. You can actually get, you can get language that prohibits drunkenness. What you will not get with any kind of clarity in the Bible is a prohibition against drinking at all. That doesn't exist in the Bible. Now, I would say just for myself, um, in terms of wisdom, it's expensive. It's very high in calories. I don't. Uh, I I think I think there's arguments on wisdom, but not sin. The, just just the general, if done correctly, if done not getting drunk. Uh, I guess that's what I just want to say with some clarity. Uh, there is there is no space. If, if your opinion is alcohol is a sin in and of itself, you are incorrect uh, because you don't get to lord your opinion over the Bible. I know. Only very few people that would say that now, though. That's really more my youth. But at the same time, I would caution those who are using your liberty. You are you are drinking. Have some wisdom, uh, and know that folks probably a lot more mature than you, uh, who had a lot more experience in life than you. Probably, uh, we could find plenty of examples who had the right theology, but then in practice, they got it wrong. So their orthodoxy was right. They believed the right thing about alcohol. And then their orthopraxy, they got it wrong. So I'm just giving you some caution, but also giving the biblical clarity. There is not any clear prohibition, just a call to wisdom. I have more of, of actual content of news and important things, and then we'll move on to sports. So stick with us for the final segment of the Corey Act Show. Welcome back to the Corey Truax Show. Two stories that are related I want to get into, and then we will move on to sports. So, starting here. Merrill Hodge, he was a former Pittsburgh Steeler. He's a big college football player as well. He's got a new book out I've been working my way through, or at least I'm working through a certain version of it, a shorter version. It's called Brainwashed, and he had the theory that I did, and he is now proving it, got together with a neuroscientist, and it's becoming really clear that the scare regarding... Uh, brain injuries amongst football players that we have we have need for a great deal more science before we just declare that football is something everyone needs to stop playing and stop having your kids play. Will Smith did a movie, and because Will Smith did a movie, it is apparently what we we all have to believe it. And whatever Will Smith's character said in the movie has to be has to be the truth. But I expected that what we would find is this was an overplayed hand. Uh, because it gets you headlines. I mean, if you're, if the result of your study is that everything's kind of okay, then you're boring and you don't get to be famous. But if the result of your study in your science is a really, it's a bombshell of a thing, well, you get more attention and you get to be famous. And I think that's what happened with this thing they called CTE, which is supposed to be a brain injury caused by we don't know. They, they thought the theory was repeated uh, trauma to the head, like it comes in football. But here is what this new book shows. That when you actually go to the scientists, when you go to, uh, he actually went to the United States and Canada with neuropathologists, and I can't even say the word here, people who study brains, 
and he asked them about CTE, there, there was a pattern he picked up in all of them is that they're not really sure. We know that it exists, but we don't know what causes it. We don't know... We, we can't find a pattern because there we, we have found CTE in football players. We've also found CTE in people who had just like one accident in their life where they hit their head. We have found CTE in some of the weirdest places with someone who seemed to have no trauma. So there is a pattern. It's something to do with people's brains, but we just don't know yet. And I would add, if people don't know this, the studies that we that we did do amongst football players was like seven people. It's like seven brains. Guys, you don't, we don't even do polling with seven people. You do polling with like at least a couple thousand. That's not called science. Uh, that's very anecdotal. Like we don't like anecdotes. We want data. And so we, we have this book out now, Brainwashed, Brainwashed. I would highly encourage at least listening to one of Merrill Hodge's interviews on this because football is not as dangerous as you've been told. Uh, you don't need to get your kids out of football if they like it. There is, no, there is no evidence to suggest you're hurting their brains by having them in football. Uh, I think it was an agenda-driven thing that has to do with sissification of America. We don't like men to be men, and football is basically the only thing left. There's a couple other things that are genuinely masculine that the culture does and still appreciates, uh, but in the war against manliness, football was something that needed to go, and this was one of the ways to try to do it from just a secular left-wing perspective. And so it got attacked. Uh, but there's there's no science. There is no science to declare that CTE is an actual problem related to this. And it strikes me how overprotective we are about our kids. Just compared to how I grew up, and man, I'm 32. The, the folks who are my parents' age, the way you guys grew up, like it's since... There, there is a some kind of psychosis to me in how we stress out about our kids. And so I want to bring to you from another book I worked through a, a while back, just some stats. To, and I wonder if the stats can convince you. I think I've told you before, one of the most discouraging conversations I ever had, I was trying to explain to somebody that the most dangerous place to drive is actually a parking lot. That's the Parking lots are the place where the most collisions happen. And if you do death per collision, it's actually secondary roads, like two-lane roads, that have the most fatalities per uh, per collision. That interstates are actually the safest place to drive. I think interstates are the safest place to drive because I guess the rules are a little simpler uh, and people are on more high alert. People are paying better attention than they are on some of the uh, the secondary roads out there. So the interstate's the safest place to drive. But I could not convince this person... Uh, despite all the statistics and all the evidence being on my side, that person literally said the words, oh, you can't convince me. Like literally no piece of information can change because I feel a certain way. So the way I feel is the way I feel. It doesn't matter what's true or not. I feel the way I feel. And so if you're a parent who thinks the world is trying to kill your kid, uh, let me encourage you. It's actually literally never been safer to be a kid in America. I gave you lots of really encouraging statistics last week about, I guess, uh, diseases and things of that sort. But just consider the child mortality rate in the United States since 1935. So you, we're down to the lowest rate ever. We're now just below 450 deaths per 100,000 children aged birth to four. This is a... Uh, sorry, I got that totally wrong. In 1935, it was 450 deaths per 100,000. Now it's 29 deaths. 29 deaths per 100,000. I mean, we're talking, that's more than 10 times. That's, that rate is 10 times lower. 
your kid is 10 times less likely to die of any for any reason whatsoever. That can be of a disease, but also from someone else's, someone else's behavior. It's fallen by 10 times. That's incredible. And if you actually get into uh, the crime statistics, the homicide rate is for kids under 14 is down to 12 homicides per... Nope, sorry. 12 homicides per 100,000 was in 1993. Now it's five per 100,000 in 2008. So we're talking just in just over 20 years. Uh, we, we cut in half that hom- homicide rate. The child abduction rate is, is about the same. We've cut it in half just since the mid-90s. Your child has never been safer from being killed or molested or abducted or dying than ever. But here's why you don't feel that way. Listen, I'm just giving you stats. I'm right. Even if you feel differently than you, you think the reality feels different, you're wrong. Your feelings are incorrect. The facts say your kids are safer than ever, but here's why you don't think so. You don't think so because now we're down to five kids per 100,000 that are murdered, but you know all five names. Because you used to not know all five names, but through social media and through news, now we know literally every terrible thing that happens to everybody, so we're all terrified all the time, but we need not be. Be encouraged. It's literally safer than it ever has been. My parents would let me take my bike three or four miles away to a park to play. I know that you would never let your kid do that now because it's so dangerous, but it actually, it is so much safer right now to send your kid on a bike ride miles away from your house than it was when you did it. It was much more sa- it's much more safe right now than it was when I did it. But we have to comport our minds to reality and stop letting news cycles and social media feeds demand fear from us and live in that terror constantly. We are all the time for serious stuff. Let's move on to sports. <laughs> One topic on all football fans and sports fans' minds, and it is, of course, the college football playoff. The rankings, the final rankings, were published this week. We're going to talk about that with our sports correspondent. His name is Heath Powell. Hello there, sir. Hello. So we'll start with the controversial decision. It was Oklahoma in at four uh, to play Alabama in Miami. Uh, the other options were Ohio State and Georgia. Are you happy with the decision? Yeah, I think it's the only decision you could make. Yeah. Um, if it weren't for the blowout at LSU, maybe Georgia had a claim to lose and get in. Yeah. But I just don't think you can be idle and get in, and I don't think you should be able to lose and get in. I just don't. Just like Alabama last year, they're idle. They still got in now. They went on to win the national championship. I know. Sure. But I, I, just, I, don't, I think you should have to win to get in. The Georgia thing, you said blowout by uh, LSU. You know, if they would have lost to LSU by three or fewer, right? I think I would have been hardcore put Georgia in this thing. All they lost to was Georgia and Bama, and it was close. But LSU kind of blew their doors off. Yeah, they did. And it's happened to Ohio State two years in a row. Yep. They got destroyed by Purdue. And last year they got destroyed by, who was it, Virginia Tech. I think it was. At home, I, yeah. I think. So, I mean, you can't have blowouts and be in the playoff. You know I don't think you can. It was Indiana. It was the Hoosiers. Was it Indiana? Okay. I remember. Cause it was, it's absurd. Yeah, it was a very bad loss. Like, yeah. why did this happen? Yes, yeah. Ohio State. So, yeah, they were immediately eliminated to me because I haven't – I guess it's a personal rule. It's not in the rule book. Right. If you get blown out, you can't be in. That's from. I don't think there are any rules because Alabama didn't even go to the conference championship last year and they still got in. Um, they go at least Oklahoma won yes. the Big 12. And they have a good argument in, well, we did lose, close game, but then we beat that same opponent. That's true, yeah. So they can at least say, yeah, we got defeated, but we avenged it. But so. even last year, Auburn beat Alabama and Georgia. Yes. And, you know, 
So it is what it is. Alabama went in as number four last year, right? Yeah, they did because they played Clemson the first game. The one seed. Uh, so it is Oklahoma. Because Clemson couldn't throw the ball. No, uh, that's a little different this year. It's a little different. So it's a smidge. <laughs> I don't know if anyone's noticed having some, uh, having some success through the air for the Clemson Tigers this year. Okay, so then let's break these two down for Oklahoma versus Alabama. It's just a question of can Oklahoma score enough, right? That's the only question. Right. And as you just instinctually think about it, is Kyler Murray that guy who was Johnny Manziel, who was Deshaun Watson, who can go go do some damage on Alabama's defense? I don't think so. Me either. <laughs> I just don't see it. Or he doesn't have enough help. Because I think Kyler Murray's really good. Yeah, Kyler Murray is so good. He's so fast, though. He's sure. hard to even touch the guy. I just don't think he has enough help. Not with the defense, Alabama. And I think they'd have the same problem against Clemson. Agreed. That's why I didn't mind if they played Notre Dame or Oklahoma. It did not matter to me who Clemson played first. Yeah, as a guy who wants to see Clemson do well, right? I um I did prefer Notre Dame because I actually think Kyler Murray is problematic. This Ian Book kid, Notre Dame or whatever his name he's is, he's a pocket passer. Like this is what you got. He this needs to get rid of the ball very quickly yeah. if they're going to play when they play Clemson. The uh, last time the team played, I think Malik Rozier was the uh, was the quarterback for. Or no, it's the Deshaun Kaiser. Yeah, Deshaun Kaiser. Saw, yeah, wrong guy. Who was a dual threat, really talented guy. But it was also Clemson plays in an outdoor stadium. There was actually a monsoon. It was a tropical storm, yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, you really get to bare bones old school football when the weather's that bad. When you look at the quarterbacks, which is so so indicative of teams, let's assume two attack of Iola is healthy, then Trevor Lawrence, Kyler Murray, and then Ian Book. This is where you sing the old song. One of these things is not like the other. One of these is not like the other. That's very true. And Ian Book is by far the worst of these four quarterbacks. Right. I don't care who Notre Dame plays. Now, if you let Ian Book stand back there with no pressure in the pocket, now he will find somebody to throw it to. Sure. But you put pressure on him. Like we've been saying, and Georgia almost pulled it off. If you can get pressure on Tua, yep. you don't know how he's going to respond. And, and I'll be honest with you, I think Georgia gave the Alabama game away. You do not do a fake punt with at fourth and 11 mm-hmm. at the 50-yard line. If it's fourth and two – you know me. I'm all on board with, with being aggressive. But 4th and 11, that's a bad call. Yeah. As soon as Alabama ran out the punt safe where there's nobody back there receiving the ball, you got you stacked the box. Call timeout. you got guys on the end. You call a timeout and you kick it. Yes. That's what that's what they should have done. So, yeah, I was texting with a friend during that game you because know, I, I went to sleep after the first quarter of the Clemson game. <laughs> but the uh, during the Alabama-Georgia thing, I don't think I've seen a worse decision. In, I haven't seen a worse decision in football except for Pete Carroll throwing it on second it's and exactly goal. It's exactly the same. Like Just kick the ball and you go to overtime. You'll just be in overtime. Yeah. And the thing with the, with the Georgia call is they had almost five full minutes left. Oh, yeah. The defense was playing well enough to, to get a three and out if you or them, stop them at least. If you pin them inside their 20 or even at the 20, yep. you're going to get the ball back. You're going to stop them. Yeah, there was plenty of time. Because Jalen, uh, even if Jalen Hurts had a great game, they weren't going to let him start slinging it. Right. In that situation, they played safe. You probably get the ball back. It was – Kirby Smart made his name sound ridiculous because it was Kirby dumb. It was. Very stupid it was. Too. Kirby it, ignorant. And, yeah, it was horrible. And maybe even early in the game, first quarter, something like that. Yeah. In this particular situation, you kick it, you play defense, you go to overtime. But as soon as they saw Alabama run out their punt safe formation, yeah. it's an automatic timeout. You, you pin them as deep as you can, and you go from there. If there were a class in college called Coaching 101, one of the 101 things was if you were planning a fake punt and then the defense lines up in a regular formation, yeah. you should call timeout. Especially on 4th and 11. I mean, yeah, it's not even close. Right. I don't even know what their play was supposed to be. It was idiotic. Well, Justin Fields was up there, and he got the short snap, and he was supposed to pass it. Now, when obviously everyone is covered, so he tries to run it up the middle. For 11 yards. It did not work out. Yeah. yeah it's fourth and 11. Running between the tackles. Punt the ball. Yeah, you just punt the thing. <laughs> and so, yeah, they Kirby lost them that game. Yeah. That, that was his own fault. Uh, but 
I was going to get to. Oh, yeah. So Ian Book being, back to Ian Book. He is by far the worst of these. And when you're talking about can you get pressure on him, well, Clemson can get pressure on you with four. Yeah. They, they do it all the time. And Tua did look uh, – This I mean, that's, this is true of Tom Brady, Aaron Rodgers, Peyton Manning. If you can get pressure on the best of them, yep. it makes them very average. It does. Ian Book is already average. When yeah, he is – to me, Ian Book is not an elite quarterback. Not, He's no. just not. And I, I don't know anybody that would make that claim except maybe, maybe, maybe Notre Dame super fans. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know any of those people. Me either. <laughs> you know, it, we're, we're not in Indiana, so I don't know. So in that, that question for the Clemson-Notre Dame game – uh, is can Notre Dame score enough just the same way as can Oklahoma score enough? And the answer to me is no. Yeah, I don't see it happening. I just don't. The same way uh, when it was Pitt, uh, even Notre Dame this year, when they're playing uh, very run-heavy teams, if your plan is, well, we're going to have to try to run on Clemson, well, you can't. It's not going to work for you. The and Pitt almost beat Notre Dame. Oh, I remember that. They, I mean, they, they, oh, yeah. had, they had them. They had them. The, the formula to beat Clemson – uh, their defense is the same formula to beat Alabama. You attack the corners. Right. You attack short passing game. You try to go deep. Notre Dame doesn't have it. They you have to try to use the defensive speed against them. That's yeah. the only way to compensate for Alabama and Clemson. It just is. But if your plan is to line up and run dive, power, counter against – Jet the, sweep, jet sweep, dive. It's not going to go well. Pitt tried it. I mean, a lot of people have tried it. It, it doesn't yeah. – there's too much speed on those defenses. And so that means, uh, by the way, Clemson is going to go to Texas to play uh, where America's team plays. I know how much you like that. In the Jerry Dome? Yeah, uh, out in, uh, in Jerry World in uh, AT&T Stadium uh, with Notre Dame. Uh, I, I just – I see that being a blowout. And I don't see Alabama, Oklahoma being all that close. I think Bama beats them pretty good too. Plus, Clemson's going to a dome, okay? There's no weather. There's no rain. Good there's point. no snow. It's the, the offensive play was going to be wide open in the dome. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, I, I don't think it's going to be close. I just don't see it. Next week, you good with going through some of the lesser bowls and the other New Year's Six? You know I love yeah. bowl picks. That's what we need to do. It's go, fun. There's a lot of good matchups. Go through other bowls next week because there's going to be a lot of fun ones to right. go through. Uh, thanks for coming in and talking sports. I appreciate Get it. Get the show on demand, and you can support the show now on Anchor. You can anchor.fm. Just look for the Corey Act Show. You will find it there. Get on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, everywhere that there is podcasts, you will find us. I'll be back with another new, new edition of the show next week. Until then, everybody, peace and love.